and get us into our slides there. Uh, we're going to talk today about the problem of brokenness and what brokenness has to do with poverty and need uh, in us and around us. And so we're going to move fairly quickly through here and be, be patient with me as we go. If, if any of you are taking notes and you go, Pastor, I missed that and now I don't understand, um, just talk to me. I'm, I'm happy to make a copy of my notes available to you. So um, just ask. Go on ahead, Joel. Let's start with some scripture here. Um, this is in James chapter 1. And um, if you've never read the, um, the letter of James, the epistle of James, it's really different to the rest of scripture, uh, particularly the rest of the uh, uh, New Testament writings, the letters of Paul. And oh my goodness, you are awesome. Thank you, Stephen. That's great. So James, at the very beginning of this letter, as he's writing, um, he says this, and, and so we're going to follow along for just a few verses. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. If you don't, uh, sorry, for if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now, that's, there's an awful lot packed in there, and I could take a lot of time to just pick apart that and exegete that passage, and, and it would be good, it would be helpful, but I want us to go into thinking about these grand problems of poverty and brokenness and need. I want to suggest to you that if we go back to what was said in the video, the guy that was talking there, he said something about we're just treating the symptoms. If we give that lady outside the restaurant a few dollars to go get a meal, we're helping, but we're only treating the symptom. We're not really treating the disease. And so I want to suggest to you that what we need to do as believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus is we need to ask for a new diagnosis. There's two ways you treat diseases because there's really two kinds of diseases. There's the kinds of diseases that you treat them just to keep them in check. The disease never gets cured. It never goes away. It stays there. It's the kind of disease that we call chronic. A chronic disease will, it will always be there, but if you treat the disease, you can, can, you can keep it contained and a lot of doctors would say you can make it manageable. You manage the disease. So perhaps something like uh, diabetes. And so we know if you have diabetes, there are things that you can do. You can take insulin that helps you process sugar in your blood. And if you do it in a disciplined manner and watch what you eat, you can live pretty much a regular life expectancy now these days. And you can have a pretty good quality of life. And most people would not notice when they were walking by you in the street that you're diabetic. 
But the disease never goes away. The other kind of disease is you get sick, and usually this is some form of an infection. You get sick with some kind of a parasite or an infection that comes into your body, and there are things that we can do that we can throw at it, like an antibiotic that goes and it just attacks that thing that's there in your body and eradicates it, and the disease goes away. Now, interestingly, there's things that in the medical world we call vector diseases, and vector diseases are diseases that are passed on and on and on, and so I'm really sick, and I'm up here, and I'm going to cough and sneeze, and Teddy's going to go home, and he's going to kiss Nikki goodnight, and, and by tomorrow morning, Arian is sick. That's a vector disease. And, and I would suggest to you, when we think about poverty and need, it's a vector disease. But here's the thing with vector diseases, once you trace back to its origins and treat the origins, vector diseases can, in theory, be eradicated. Now, there's only a couple that have, and one that's, that's really well-known and one that's not, but uh, hookworm is one that it's, we're really close to, to eradicating that in the world. But the one that's really well-known is smallpox. And there was a time in our history where if smallpox came around you and your house and your village or your town, it was bad, bad news and lots of people were going to die. But in this day and age, smallpox is not found anywhere in the world in its natural form. It's gone. If humanity, through the intelligence that God has given us and the technology that he's allowed us to develop, if humanity can treat a disease like smallpox and eradicate it, because we were serious about it and it scared us to death, and sometimes literally. Maybe if we had a new diagnosis for poverty, we could, at the very least, we could manage it. And in places, we could probably eradicate it. I have a friend who is a great believer, and he went to pastor at a college church in a small town here in the Midwest, in, the, in Illinois. And he arrived there, and in this small town and in their county, he started to look around, and he noticed that there was a big disparity between the people who went to his church, the college church. They were professors, and, and, and the professor's spouses, and they were people who worked on the staff and the executives at the college, and they were people who had gone to the college and stayed there and became lawyers and doctors and politicians. But then he looked around and he noticed who was not coming to his church. And then when he looked around, he noticed that there was a huge disparity between the people in his church and the people in the county. Because the people in the county were largely uh, agriculturally based. They lived or had grown up on farms and they were working blue-collar jobs to supplement a farm income. And we in Kansas know that farming has changed enough that living just by farming is tough to do these days. And so my friend Doug got up one Sunday morning and he said, you know, I think God has spoken to me. And he said this to his church, a church much larger than ours, but he said, I think God has spoken to me and I think what God is telling me is that our church needs to lead the way in eradicating poverty in Bond County. And I have to tell you that that sent shockwaves through his church. You, you, wait a minute, you said eradicating poverty. Do you want us just to put together, you know, maybe a, a, a thrift shop? Maybe we can give away clothing or food? No, I, I want us to eradicate poverty. That church has gone on a radical journey of addressing the physical needs in their county. 
And hopefully I can share more about that later in the series. But I think we need a new diagnosis about what's really wrong. So, I have to tell you right up here at the top that when I say these things and you go, boy, Pastor Hank has thought about this a lot and he's really got this in hand. These are not my ideas. I am borrowing them. And this is the book that that this comes from, When Helping Hurts. And actually, Steve Corbett, one of the two authors, is the guy you saw in the first video. Um, He's he's six foot ten, if you were to see him in person. And he said, people always come up and want to ask me questions. And usually the first one is, are you really that tall? (laughs) But uh, then after that, they ask him questions about poverty. And he is part of the Chalmers Center to address poverty here in the United States. They're down in Tennessee and they're doing amazing stuff. So when I say these things and you go, I got to ask Pastor Hink about this, you might, if you really want to go far with this, just go buy the book or ask me about it. But here's the thing. As we think about poverty and brokenness, we need to come back to what this really is about. And so we have to ask some questions. What is poverty? Is the first one. And then why did Jesus really come? to earth. And then finally, what does that have to do with me or how does that influence me as I respond to those two, uh, the answers to those two questions. So as we think about this, poverty, and, and Steve said this in the video, poverty, the definition of what is poverty is a little bit different depending on who you talk to. So for us, most of us here today, in the Western world, in the United States in particular, are what the rest of the world would consider people who are materially rich. Now you might go, really? Do you know how old my car is? And I would probably respond, it's probably about as old as mine. But, uh, and that's okay. But the fact of the matter is, uh, like Steve, I'm a guy that, that my wife and I each drive a different car. We live in a, in a, a, a very pleasant home. And I live in incredible security. I, you know, just this week I went into Walmart without thinking about locking my car and I came back out and as I reached for the car handle, I noticed that it was already unlocked and I hadn't locked it. And then I kind of panicked because I knew what I'd left in the car. Nobody touched it. I was fortunate. But I also live in relative security because I know if I had to go back to my childhood days where I lived in Africa, that would never happen. I would come back and there would probably be no seats left in my car. So we live in, 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 in a relatively materially rich reality. And people who live in that reality, we tend to define poverty as a lack of material goods. It means we don't have things. We don't have food. We don't have water, basic things. But we also don't have things like, like jobs. We don't have uh, that, you know, we, we talk about those things kind of defining really abject, extreme poverty. But then if we go on from there, we look around us and we see people who are impoverished in America, but they, they still have some things. They may not be great things, they may be worn out things, and they may be things that we would throw away, but they still have some things. And so we tend to think if we could just give them the right things, poverty would go away. If we could give them a house to stay in or an apartment to live in. If we could give them food on their table. If we could clothe them. If we could give them health care. Those kinds of things. But here's the interesting thing. So these guys that wrote this book, they went around the world and they started asking people. And they even did this with people here in the United States. And they said, tell us how you define poverty. And, and if you're interested, I have a list of about 10 or 12 different responses from people all around the world. In some places that are incredibly poor compared to the United States. 
And without exception, they tend to define poverty in some kind of relational terms. I am missing something relational. And in terms of those relationships, then that means I lack opportunity, I lack access in the terms that you have opportunity and access in your world. So if, if we for a moment could suspend our sense that poverty means I got no money and no stuff, and in turn work for a while with a definition that poverty means I am living in a reality of brokenness, of relationship. And that not having those relationships leaves me incredibly disadvantaged. Now, as I say those things, I'm sure that some of you can think about people you know who's, who have grown up in places with incredibly broken relationships. And one that comes to mind for me all the time in America is the relationship that is broken between children and fathers. In America, fatherlessness is an epidemic. I had the privilege of pastoring a church in Illinois where uh, our youth group grew because of some things that our youth pastor did there at the time. And, and it grew through uh, his outreach to the high school football team of the local high school. And that meant that in our youth group, we had about half to three-fourths of the kids there were, were teenage boys, which is remarkable. And they were football players, a lot of them. Some of them were wrestlers that were friends. But about half of them were African-American. And a couple of those guys I got to know pretty well. And one of them, my friend Gino, um, he came and he became very committed to our youth group. And his life, I, I think, changed dramatically in our time there. And as I got to know Gino, I, uh, which is, I, I still laugh and I joke with him because I don't think... A, a black guy should be named Gino. That should be an Italian guy. But anyway, that's, that was his name. And I asked Gino about his family. Eventually, I got to know him well enough that I thought, okay, you know, tell me a little bit about your family. Well, I live with my mom. I just, just with my mom. But I have brothers and sisters, and they're kind of all around, and I, I have several brothers and sisters. And that's how it started. But then as we unpacked it, he went on to tell me that, then he said, well, my mom is blind. And I met her, and, and she was. She, she was blind, and she couldn't see. And then after a few more months, he admitted to me that 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 isn't his biological mom. That's the woman that took him in as a baby because his mom was on drugs and she fostered him and got guardianship of him and, and raised him. And finally, after a couple more months, I asked him about his dad. And he, he goes, I don't even really know my biological mom. I have no idea who my dad is. Now, in that kind of a setting, and I would just suggest that Gino is not alone. Some of you probably know people who would go, I don't know who my dad or my mom is. But in that kind of setting with broken relationship, his opportunities and the strength that comes from building relationship was missing. Now, fortunately for him, he connected with us. He made a lot of good friends. And he had a winsome personality, an incredible personality, and he had a lot of drive. And then the last year, uh, I was able to send a, a little note on social media of congratulation to Gino. He completed his graduate degree in student development, and he's working at a university in Wisconsin. This kid clawed his way out of poverty, but he never could have done it alone. It was impossible. 
I think Gina would tell you that that reality of broken relationships and what he understands now was the thing that held him back the most. There's nobody there to make sure that things don't fall through the crack, to support me, to stand behind me, go, go for it, you can do this. And fortunately, as he moved into his high school years, he found a group and a family unit that came alongside him and did that. And he is a fine young man who has beaten the odds. So, if we define poverty by brokenness, then let's move on to the next question. Why did Jesus come? Well, we might answer, and this might be a first answer for some of us who grew up in the church and are kind of culturally Christian. We would say, well, Jesus came to get people to heaven because sin cost us that, and so he came and died so that we can go to heaven. That's kind of a Sunday school answer. And it's a, it's, it's a correct answer, but it's an insufficient answer. There's more to it than that. Because we know that Jesus not only came to get people to heaven, but Jesus came to address the issue of sin. Sin had broken relationship between us and God, and that relationship being broken meant that we were at a significant disadvantage compared to what God had created and intended us to be. And so Christ came to heal that relationship between people and God. And there were attempts over and over again in the Old Testament at healing that relationship. And that looked like an animal sacrifice that was called the, the sacrifice of atonement. And we would sacrifice something. We're sorry for our sin. And, and we think we're right with God again for a while. But it was just for a while. Until Jesus came and we know he became a sacrifice for our sin and he made a way for us to have relationship and not just the people of Israel, not just Jewish people, but all people who seek him, find him. So that's, that's a good answer, but it's also an insufficient answer because that, it, it isn't just about healing a relationship because that's getting us to heaven, but it's about freeing people from the stuff that holds us back. I was recently talking to one of you and you were telling me how God had dealt with some things in your life that had been really destructive behavior. And I'm not going to mention their name because I don't want to embarrass them, but, but the story they told me was profound and it just, it just knocked me back on my heels because they said, you know, I was, I was doing these things thinking this is going to get me by. I was drinking too much alcohol. I was neglecting my family and spending way too much time at work because I got to bring home a paycheck to keep it going. But then the stress of work meant that as soon as I got off work, I wanted, I wanted to just drown it in beer. And, and so I drank too much alcohol. I worked too much. And as a result, my family didn't really care to have me around as much. And in this, I could just see broken relationship with God, broken relationship with others. And then as things went on, he said, I was just angry with everybody. I became angry with my wife, even though she had done nothing to deserve it. I became angry with the guy next to me in, in, the, in the next lane at the traffic light just because I didn't like the way he looked. And he realized, I am sick. And his story of walking that back and finding a couple of people who spoke truth to him, it's just, it, it just powerful. And I hope soon that he'll share that story with you because I, I just spent the rest of the day going, you know, God, you do great stuff. You free people from that stuff and you turn them and you put them on another path that looks different. And that path of freedom means that you not only came to set us free from that, but you came to save us. And I would suggest 
God coming, Jesus coming to save us isn't just this fire insurance thing where we're not going to hell, now we're going to heaven. But he wants to save us from what's coming tomorrow and Tuesday. And if that's true, then the issues of poverty and brokenness and the, the, the reason for Jesus coming is in the here and now. And so we recognize this a little bit in how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your, your, your kingdom come on earth now, here, and the not yet in heaven. It's both. And so while these, one of these answers would be insufficient, when you start to put them together, you get this complete picture that Jesus came to address all of this. So, let's go on to the third question. How does that then influence me? If brokenness is the problem, and Jesus came to address that problem, then... As a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would suggest that you get to play a part in addressing that. And so here's where I would just ask, do you have a part to play in this? Maybe it is to share the good news that brokenness can be healed. Maybe it is to break sin or at least announce the possibility to break sin and the cycle of sin. I could go on and on about that. Some people just need to hear that, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. That's all they're looking for is that amount of hope. To free others, because right, Jesus came to set free, and maybe we can be part of that. To show God's love to other people, and then ultimately to give him the glory. If we can participate with those things, if it's not just, hey, let's sit back, pull out your lawn chairs, and let's watch what Jesus does, but instead we say, God, if you're doing that, let us join you in the work. We get to be part of people coming free, people experiencing the love of God, and God gaining this incredible glory for what that looks like. Here's the way the guys in the book diagram it. So you see, put yourself in the middle, you know, the guy that's just a head and a torso there. You have a relationship with God that's been broken. You have a relationship with yourself that's been broken. A relationship with others and a relationship with the rest of creation that's been broken. And this, this thing gets built out even more. This is the simplest form of it. But think about this, because those are the four relationships we're going to talk about now. So, restoring relationships, as we think about restoring relationships, I want to suggest that we need to do some deductive reasoning. And I, I love logic and philosophy, so just forgive me as I get into this for two minutes. Some of you have dealt with if-then statements. If this is true, then that is true. Or, if this is a reality, then that is what we should do. That's logic. And it's, it's what's used in deductive reasoning. So if a, if a police detective happens on a crime and he goes, hmm, I wonder what happened here. He's going to go around or she's going to go around and look at the evidence and, oh, the glass is broken. And if the glass is broken and it lands on the inside of the house, it was broken from the outside. If, then. You got it? It's easy to understand, right? We do this all the time. If the brake pedal goes to the floor on my car, then I need a brake job. Pretty simple. Quick deduction. If that's true, 
with regard to needs. And I want you to be thinking about needs of people you love and you know. Someone who goes, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to get through this month. Pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to get the health care I need. Or uh, those kinds of terms. That brings it a little closer to home. If that is true, then how can we address that? And I would tell you that there are times when I go really quick from if to then, what I need to do. And there are times when I do the if, and then it's just followed by a bunch of dots because I go, well, what goes on next, Lord? Because I do not know how to meet a need so great. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to suggest to you that as we think about broken relationship, that, that we start small. Every big thing starts small. And if we can say, if this is what's going on, then there's something small I can do. Never discount a small righteous act. Never discount a small righteous act because the smallest thing can grow. And when it gains enough momentum, it becomes enormous. I was recently reading, and I'm going I'm to go off track for a minute. I'll try to go quick. I was recently reading about uh, an actor who has come to faith in Christ, who's well-known. And some of you probably saw him because he just got an MTV award and he talked about faith in God. And now, now his name escapes me. Thank you. Chris Pratt. A young, talented actor, highly in demand right now. And he talked about God in his life. So I went and Googled him. I said, I want to know what happened and how this is true. And he talked about how he was going down this road of, of alcohol and drugs and hedonism and he was out one night with his friends. He had not yet been discovered. He had not yet become an actor. And uh, he came out of a bar, and there was a man standing out in front of the bar, and the man came up to him and said, this is not going to give you the life you want. Total stranger. Complete stranger. And he goes, oh yeah, what is? And without batting an eye, the guy said, you need to know Jesus Christ. And in the course of a few sentences, he got Chris Pratt's attention. And by the time the rest of his friends had come out of the bar, he said, you guys go on without me. I want to stay and talk to this guy. He spent the rest of the evening talking to that guy, and it changed the course of his life. So when you think something small won't matter, one conversation with Chris Pratt has changed his life and has given this guy, because of his talent and his uh, opportunity has given him a huge platform to speak about God. So meager fixes are not to be discounted. Start small, it will grow. So let's look at relationship with God because when, when there's relationship with God is broken, I think the others, healing the others is virtually impossible. You see, wholeness really flows from God in Christ or through Christ to us. I cannot be a whole person if I stand in defiance of God, I will break myself trying to defy him. Max Lucado used to refer to it this way in one of his books. He said, God is like an anvil. I don't know if you know what an anvil is. a big, huge steel piece that usually sits in a blacksmith's shop. And you pound metal, you heat it up, and blacksmiths work the metal on an anvil. He said, God is like that anvil. And you have two choices when you come up and encounter God. You can either be broken on the anvil because you're brittle and resistant or you can choose to be shaped by God. 
But God is the anvil and he is not shaped by us. It's the other way around. And so I would just suggest to you that when we encounter God, if we're looking for wholeness, we have to encounter the wholeness of God that reshapes us, reshapes me, changes the way I look around me. I look at myself, I look at others, I look at the rest of creation because I begin to see myself through the eyes of God. Now that means, one, I come to the place where I understand that sin is a part of my life and the effects of sin in my life are really ugly and destructive. And so as, as I look for relationship with God to be restored, I have to come to grips with the fact that, that sin's got to be dealt with because that is what's broken the relationship. And if I don't deal with that, it'll happen again and again and again. And we know that the only true way to deal with sin is to beg forgiveness of God and seek the blood of Christ and come under his grace and then learn to live and walk in his ways. So we cannot say, okay, I want a relationship with God, but I'm going to keep doing things that really tick him off and really destroy me and the people around me. It doesn't work. In that broken relationship, if I'm standing there going, shaking my fist at God, saying, I refuse to come to a place of wholeness in you, I am going to take one of two extreme positions. Either I'm going to take a position way over here that says, you know what, my life is such a mess, it's so incredibly broken that I'm nobody. I totally devalue myself. I can't believe anybody will want to spend time with me. I'm a worm. And I would begin to define my life by that, and that shapes my relationship to self, which we're going to talk about in a moment. So either I totally devalue myself and say, I, you know, I, I'm nobody, and I forget that I'm created, or you're created, in the image of God. So we are, cannot be totally worthless, because God made us, and he made us in his image. So that's a lie. Or we swing all the way to the other side, and we say, I don't need God. God's not necessary here. I will take care of myself. I'm going to be self-sustaining, self-preserving. And in doing that, what I'm, what I'm actually doing philosophically, instead of saying I'm worthless and I should just be destroyed, is I come to a place where I say, I am my own God. I am the master of my own destiny. That, that is the most atheistic thing someone can say. And we deify ourselves. We make ourselves the deity and we say, I'm going to stand in the place of God and I don't really need him. I will shake my fist at God and I'll do it my way. That's where we end up getting broken on that anvil. Either place is a lie and either place affects our relationship with ourselves. So let's look at that. Relationship to self is us answering the question, so who are you really? Do you think you're a God and you don't need anybody else? I'll do it my way. Do you think you're a worm who isn't worth living and God made a mistake? You see, on the one hand, we have the I'm my own savior mentality that I will do it, I don't need anyone else. And that doesn't honor God because we're not dependent on him. We're not interdependent with any other people. And so, or, or his creation. Or we come over to this other place that I kind of like to call the despicable me. You guys know the little yellow guys? And it's not the yellow guys that were despicable. It was the guy that they were serving. And he was really a nasty guy. And he found out that he needed people in his life. 
He was a worm. And he kind of enjoyed being a worm, but he really didn't. So our relationship to ourselves becomes defined by our relationship with God. And if we can come to a place where we go, you know, God loved me enough not only to create me, but he loved me enough to send his son to pay for me, to save me. And not just from going to hell, which in itself would be enough, but he loved me enough to save me from what's going to happen Monday morning. He loved me enough to save me from other people around me who would benefit from my destruction. If we can come to a place where we have wholeness with God and I can accept how God loves me and I can learn to live in the love of God, that changes how I feel about myself and it changes the resources that I am able to give to those around me. If I can receive the love of God, I can give the love of God and that leads us to time by relationship with others. And so as we talk about then, how do I relate to my spouse, my parents, my children, my, my boss, my neighbors, my pastor, and then we can just keep going out from there. The people on the other side of town, the politicians in, in Washington, those people in Syria, how do we relate to them? Well, if God has loved me and I accept the love of God and I'm learning to live in the love of God and I'm walking in his ways and I define myself that way, then the way I love my wife changes, the way I love my kids and so on and so on and it just goes out from there. You see, if I don't accept that, I tend to fall into this place where others around me fall into two camps and they're kind of related. They're not just absolute opposites like I was talking about with self. But if I don't do that, then others are my competition. And I will just suggest to you that a sense of competitiveness and comparison is a cancer that drives poverty. I know more people who will bankrupt themselves to buy the car, the house, the jet ski, the camper, the RV, all that stuff because my neighbor got it or my, my brother-in-law got it. And I will take incredible risks to have the appearance that I can keep up with them. That comparison and competition thing will rob us. And then when we fall short and, oh my goodness, they must make way more money than I do because they got another new RV our relationship to ourself then gets damaged, doesn't it? Because I go back to feeling like I'm a worm. So either they're my competition or they're, they're, you know, and this is where it's related, they're my adversary. We have an adversarial relationship. It's us and them. And I want to suggest to you that there are a lot of things happening in our country right now that is using a crowbar of adversarialism. And we have to compare ourselves to everyone else. And when we look at them, they become our enemy. Not because necessarily, although some of them have picked up weapons against us, but just because they want what we want, they're our enemy. And I would suggest that our relation to others is broken because we have no concern for them. I got to make sure that we are taken care of before them. So we move from God and me to us and them. And I would just suggest to you, the bigger you can draw your circle to include us, the more Christ-like you'll be.
And there will always be people who stand and shake their fist at us. There will always be. But I want to do everything I can in my power to change that. And say, no, no, no. You can put the fist down and walk with me. You can be part of us. Finally, relationship to the rest of creation. You see, as we move to a place where we are willing to include and care about others, then the question arises, then how do we use the resources that are at our disposal? I had an interesting experience. Some of you know my feelings about immigrants, and that's a, it's a hot-button political issue, and part of this is because I've lived in other parts of the world. But I, I really, I, I am absolutely convinced that God loves people from other parts of the world as much as he loves me. And if they're suffering, he might even love them more. And, and then when I think about, you know, people coming here and, and, and wanting what we have, I think the devil often convinces us and tricks us that if they get what we have, we won't have it. If they get what I have, then I lose it, right? But God does incredible things where he takes resources and multiplies them, and sometimes it defies explanation. I mean, that's what Jesus did when this little kid brought five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Hey, give me your lunch. Well, then I won't have a lunch. No, then everybody will have a lunch. And it's bizarre, and economically it makes very little sense, but I just kind of live in this, a bit of a fairy tale, maybe a biblical fairy tale, that if I trust God with what I have, he will make it sufficient somehow. And I was having a bit of an argument with a family member of mine, and they were saying, you know, if all those refugees come here to America, where in the world are we going to put them? I didn't have a very good answer. Or a very nice answer. And so I had to apologize for that. But I didn't have a good answer. And then I went on vacation. And I'm driving. I drove out to Colorado. And then I drive up through Wyoming. And if you've ever driven through Wyoming. And somebody says, where am I going to put them? I just go on. And I I don't understand the resources and the ecology up there. If there's enough water. If there's any, anyway. But I went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles without any building. I thought, I bet we can put some here. I don't know how, but I'm really idealistic, and maybe we could put some of them here. And so I texted them back, and I go, have you ever been to Wyoming? And they didn't answer me. But I just, I, I wonder then how we use our resources. Do we use our resources in ways that say that we have faith in God and God's ability to multiply, or do we use our resources in ways that say we should hoard them because this is all we're going to get, and if they get it, I don't have it. See, when we have this broken sense of relationship with the rest of creation, we tend to use our resources in ways that deplete them, that idolize them, and rob them. So we get, we're just going to use it all up. It's, it's like the mashed potatoes being passed at the supper table in a family that does not appreciate resources from the hand of God. And so when the mashed potatoes go by, you have this sense that if I don't take mashed potatoes, I'm not going to get any mashed potatoes, so I take them all. And then nobody else gets any mashed potatoes, but I got my mashed potatoes. And then the way that we use those resources, if we do it that way, where we deplete everything, we idolize it, I've got to have my mashed potatoes... 
I rob from somebody else and then I break those other relationships with others and then I find out with myself because I took everything for myself and I gave no consideration to the needs of others. This kind of mentality says I got to get what I can while I can no matter what the cost. And I would suggest to you that the cost of handling resources that way is far higher than you would think. It costs way more than you would think because you might increase your paycheck, but it's going to be taken out of the account that you have with people you love. And you're going to harm your relationship with those who stand the closest to you, who live closer to you. And so if we can have a sense of stewardship of our resources, and I mean any kind of resource, it changes the way we are with others. I've got to move fast here because we're out of time. So where do we begin? Pastor Hink, you're talking about this huge thing. Global poverty. How in the world can we at Northwest address global poverty? We can't even balance our budget here in the church. Well, I just want to suggest to you, yeah, I've got a couple of amens from people that are working with me in the office. Thank you, Lord. These are God's resources. This building belongs to God. This property belongs to God. Your pastor belongs to God. Your worship band belongs to God. And these are his resources. And I don't always know how he is going to provide, but I am convinced that because God has called us to be here, he will provide for us. I'm foolish. I understand that. I'm an idiot. But I would rather be foolish in the direction of God than foolish in the direction of my own understanding. I would rather say, God, if you want this to work, then somehow provide, use these resources, multiply them, because they are not enough. And seek God in that. And even though I know this is a drop in the ocean, you know, the offering plate is going to be passed here in a little bit, so... Our finance team is going, go pastor, because they want this to be said before the offering plate goes by. But here's the thing. You might think, you know what? What I can do and what resources at my disposal are a drop in the ocean. And you're right. When it comes to the, the needs of our church, the needs of our community, the needs of the world, what we have in our hands seem like nothing. But let me tell you, the $1, the $5, the $10, the $100 you put in the offering plate gets multiplied. Somehow, because other people do that too. And then God just has these incredible ways of plugging in more and providing the resources. And I know that sounds very idealistic, but I'd, I would venture on being idealistic with God. And so it's a drop in the ocean compared to the need, but an ocean is filled one drop at a time. You see, this is where mighty rivers begin. I had the privilege this last week of traveling through the mountains, and you drive up through there, and it's just gorgeous. We, I had booked a camping spot. I didn't even know where it was. I missed out on the one I really wanted. I'd done all this investigation online, and it booked up before I got it booked. And so I just picked one. What's open? We've got to have the place to stay. And we booked this little camping spot, this wonderful little place called Half Moon Lake in Wyoming. And we went driving up there, and, and, and the Kayleen and Lanier asked me, what is it going to be like? You know, is there, are there trees here? And I'm just sitting there going, I, I, just, I just hope there aren't bears. You know, that's it. I'll be happy with that. 
And we come around, and here we come over the ridge, and there's this, this gorgeous kind of a hidden lake. And we wind down into the camping area, and it's all wooded. And, and I said, well, I reserved a spot. So we drove around until we saw our name on the spot, the little camp spot. We put up our tent. And, and, you know, we were like 30 yards from the lake. And I looked at that, and, I, and I, I just thought, man, this is incredible. But as we were coming in, there was a stream coming down the mountain, and I'm pretty sure, because where we were at, that that was snow melt. Because you could still see up on the peaks there was snow in July. And I stopped the car, and I said to the girls, I said, hey, check, check, check this out. Take a look at this. And they grabbed their cell phones, and they snapped some pictures of this incredible stream as we went across the bridge. And as I sat there, the Kansan in me, the guy that spent a significant amount of time in western Kansas. I'm sitting there watching the water come down, and I go, that's a lot of water. <laughs> now, a lot of other people would go, oh, it's a nice little mountain stream. But I'm sitting there thinking about the gallon after gallon. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It's a lot of water. Where does that come from? Well, I, I would suggest to you that that water comes from a snowflake. That's it. And that snowflake gets joined with another and another and another, and eventually millions and billions and trillions more snowflakes. And comes down, and it went right under our car, under that bridge, out into this huge, beautiful lake. The trouble is, we stand up there somewhere on the mountain, and we see a little trickle of water, and we go, this will never do. And we never journey with God far enough to see what the lake looks like. I want us to change that. I want us to have faith that God will provide us the journey to plenty so that we can be a blessing to all people everywhere. I want the band to come back up and we're going to sing a song. And, you know, as I've said these things, I've talked about some really big ideas, but I recognize that this is true for some of you. I don't know where my next tank of gas is going to come from. Or I don't know how I'm going to make it through the next payday because all of a sudden these bills came in that I wasn't expecting. And I could go on and on and on. And it's just talking about material things. But here's what I suggest to you. Take a moment with me and let's do a little bit of an examination on those relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with resources around us, with creation around us. You know that this, this is always open as a place of prayer. If you say, you know what, I have totally smashed to smithereens these, these relationships, and I don't know where to start, you can come up and have prayer here. There are some people who are prepared to pray with you this morning. Or maybe it's just, it, it, it's so devastating. Emotionally, you couldn't do that. You, I can't do that. But don't walk out and live in that place any longer. You can take one of us aside and say, I, I, gotta, I gotta make some changes because that's my life. And I will pray with you and there's others here that would be happy to pray with you. And we'll not only pray with you, we'll walk with you on that journey. And I don't know what it will look like and I will not make all the right calls, but God will. And so we're gonna trust him and we're gonna surrender to what he wants to do.